0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our Bibles together to Luke chapter 7. I'm going to read in a moment verses 24 through 30. This week, I received a text message from my old college roommate. He and his wife have four children, ranging from 16 down to 10. The message said this, quote, my kids are telling me that if someone is a great athlete these days, you call them a goat. What gives, end quote. You see, then Jody and I were kids, if an athlete made a mistake that cost his team the game, he was called a goat. It was not a compliment. Well, today the term has made a complete 180. What used to be bad is, is now good. In fact, the term goat means greatest of all time. I hear there's a ball game tonight. <laughs> and the experts are telling us that one of the two quarterbacks in the game, Tom Brady, is the greatest quarterback of all time. I call them so-called experts because as we all know in this room Roger Staubach is the greatest quarterback <laughs> of all time. We do not have to wonder who the greatest person other than Christ of all time is because Jesus tells us in our text today. Luke seven, twenty-four. when the messengers of John had left, he began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed and lived in luxury are found in royal palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who is more than a prophet. That is the one about whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he... When all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. May the Lord have his blessing the reading and hearing his word. Well, the first thing that we see here are a series of questions. Last week, we looked at an episode in the Lord's earthly ministry when John the Baptist had a season of doubt and disappointment as he was held prisoner to the puppet king, Herod Antipas. John, because he couldn't go himself, sent two of his disciples to find Jesus and ask him, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Even the last and greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist was not immune from doubt and disappointment. But rather than rebuking John harshly, Jesus uses this occasion as a teaching opportunity. Jesus was of course, among other things, a master teacher. And one of the most effective techniques of teaching is to ask your students a series of questions. That is known today as the Socratic method, but uh, Jesus should get credit for that. So, let's look at the questions he asked of those who came to hear him teach. He said, speaking to the crowd, he asked them, what did you come out in the wilderness to see, a reed shaken by the wind, Well, John, of course, was, as he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Literally, John's ministry took place in the wilderness out from Jerusalem. And to go into the wilderness was quite an undertaking. They did not have the infrastructure system that we have today. There were not 7-Elevens on every corner to stop and refresh. It was a journey and a difficult and dangerous one. There were robbers. There was... uh, Lack in the wilderness. It was a dangerous place. And yet, the scripture said all of Jerusalem was going out to hear John preach. That is, people of all kinds were coming out to the wilderness. And John's message, if you recall, was not a soft one. He preached repentance and judgment and hell. And Jesus said, you weren't attracted to go out into the wilderness by John because he was easily movable. That's what he says a reed shaken by the wind. A reed was the most tender of plants, and even a little gentle breeze would cause them to bow down. And John was not like that. He was firm in his preaching, and he was stable. Jesus' point was that John was not weak, but strong and unflinching, and his message was undiluted. And it's what God used to draw people by the Holy Spirit. Then he asked another question What did you come out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Well, that's a euphemism for an effeminate man. I don't think of effeminate when I think of John the Baptist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and his clothing was a camel's hide. Kings would surround themselves by these yes men. And by telling the king how wonderful he was, that often afforded you an easy life. He let you eat off his table. He let you wear his clothing, these soft clothes of royalty. And, And so he says, John didn't tell powerful people what they wanted to hear. He spoke to them prophetically. In fact, that's what caused John to end up in prison and ultimately cost him his head, is that he told Herod that he was a sinner and his wife was a sinner and the rest is history. He was not a man who wore soft clothing. Those who are splendidly clothed, Jesus says, live in luxury. They're found in royal palaces. John was in a royal palace, but it was the dungeon. John was in prison because he viewed the king as anyone else, a sinner in need of a savior, and because of his boldness. And then Jesus asked, did you go out to see a prophet? A prophet is one who speaks for God, who brings a message from God to the people. And what is more impressive when Jesus calls John a prophet, and the people by the way, almost universally recognized him as so everyone knew that John was a prophet who had a message from God. That is particularly impressive when you are reminded that there had not been a prophet in Israel in over 400 years. Now, in your Bible if you have both Old and New Testaments likely there is a blank white page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, that blank white piece of paper says a lot. It represents 430 years of history where the people of God, the nation of Israel, did not hear from God through a prophet for four centuries. Can you imagine? The people alive in John's day not only had never heard or seen a prophet, their parents, grandparents, and great, 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 great grandparents had not seen a prophet. And yet when he comes on the scene, his ministry is so powerful and his teaching is so clear that everyone knew this is a prophet. And so Jesus says, he is a prophet but more than a prophet. So is John a prophet? You bet he is. Jesus affirmed that, goes beyond and says he's more than a prophet. He's the greatest prophet of of all time. And that leads us to the compliment. I told you last week that Jesus paid John the Baptist the greatest compliment anyone has ever received. Now, before we hear it, let's be reminded of what a compliment is. A compliment is simply a statement of truth about another person that is positive. That's different than flattery. Flattery is an exaggeration that is meant to manipulate a person to get them to do something you want. (laughs) So, we use flattery in our culture as a tool to manipulate people, which is just another word for dishonesty, which is just another word for lying. And the Bible says, thou shalt not lie. So, So, don't inflate another person's ego through flattery, but it's certainly okay to give someone a compliment when you're simply stating a truth fact. That's all Jesus does in verse 28, look at it. Greatest compliment ever given. I say to you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Game over. Debate over. Jesus, the creator of the universe and all humanity, declares once and for all that John the Baptist is the greatest of all time. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I cringe a little bit because... The person making that statement, the Lord Jesus, we know to be the greatest of all time. Why would he say John the Baptist is the greatest of all time? Well, it's in what he says of those born of women, which was a colloquialism in those days for all humanity. That is all those who were born as men are born, and we know Jesus was born of a woman, but he was more than a man, he is God in the flesh. He means that all those who are not God in the flesh, born of woman, among those, John the Baptist is the greatest of all all time. Now, Jesus, of course, because he's perfect in every way, was also meek and humble, and we could do with a lot more humility in our culture. There are some people who like to proclaim themselves the greatest. I remember when I was a very small boy dating myself, Muhammad Ali was still heavyweight champion of the world. And he was a great boxer. And after every victory, he would take the microphone and tell Howard Cosell, Howard, I am the greatest. And he believed it. And he was at that time. And then years later, I was a huge baseball fan, and one of my favorite players was Ricky Henderson. Because Ricky could do what I never could, which is run fast. (laughs) And his specialty was stealing bases. And even into his 40s, he was still stealing bases. Finally, one day he stole third base and they stopped the game. Press Corps comes out on the field in the middle of the game. They do an interview right on the field because he had broken the all-time stolen base record. And they stick a microphone in Ricky's face and he says, Today, Ricky Henderson is the greatest of all time. (laughs) Well, that's not real humble. But what Jesus was saying when he said John the Baptist was the greatest is not false humility. He's just saying of those who aren't God, John the Baptist is the greatest. Now, the first question that comes to my mind is why? Why of all the billions of people that have ever lived, would Jesus single out John the Baptist as as the greatest? As we saw last week, it's certainly not because he had perfect faith. There was a a Roman centurion who had greater faith than John the Baptist Jesus says, I believe he uses the term greatest because... It has to do with John's place in prophetic history. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. He's the forerunner of Jesus. He broke a 400-year period of silence from prophets in Israel. But the main reason is that he led people directly to Jesus. You remember, a lot of people thought John was the Messiah. That's why they went out to see him. But when Jesus came out to the wilderness, he said, I must decrease, he must increase. He said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not fit to untie his shoes. He said that. Behold, the Lamb of God, he points to Jesus, that takes away the sin of the world, not me. And so he was the greatest of importance up until that time. And in his sovereignty, God chose John the Baptist to prepare the world for Jesus. But John, though he was the greatest of men, was a sinner in need of a Savior. And that leads us to our third point which is the declaration. Look what Jesus says, I say to you, among those born of women there is no one greater than John, yet he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Tires screeching. What? How can the least in the kingdom of God be greater than the greatest man who ever lived up until that time? How is that possible? Well, again, Jesus is speaking from a historical perspective. Those in the kingdom, which means New Testament saints, those who come to put their faith and trust in Jesus after the cross event, by the way, that's all of us. Remember, human history is to be seen as two mountains. The first mountain is the first coming of Jesus at his birth, the second mountain, his second coming in the future, and we live in that valley in between a time called the Church Age. And he says all of those Christians living in the Church Age are part of the Kingdom and the least in that group is greater than John the Baptist. Why would he say that? It's because those of us living on this side of the cross have a historical privilege that even the Old Testament prophets did not. Because we live on this side of the cross and not the other, you and I have a fuller understanding of God's eternal redemptive plan and even the prophets, including John the Baptist. How can that be? Let me explain. Because after all, John had the privilege of seeing Jesus face to face. He heard him teach. He saw his miracles. How in the world could we have a clear perspective on Christ and John? For the last five weeks, Brother Ted Eaton has been leading us through a study of 1 Peter on Wednesday evenings. And one of the most interesting passages of 1 Peter is in chapter 1. Listen to it. Peter is speaking to Christians in the first century who have been saved after the day of Pentecost. They're being persecuted. They've been dispersed all over the Mediterranean world. And he's writing to encourage them to remain faithful even through persecution. This is what he says And though you have not seen him, speaking of Jesus, you love him. And though you do not see him now but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. And Peter is writing to people who did not see Jesus in his life. They are what we call second generation Christians. That puts them in the same category as all of us. None of us, as far as I know, have seen Jesus with our physical eyes. We did not hear him teach. We did not see him perform his miracles. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you see, have not seen him now, you believe in him. And greatly rejoice for the salvation of your souls. That's New Testament believers. Jesus says all of those are greater than John the Baptist because they have a greater privilege than John. Now, listen to this as to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look." Now now get this, we think of Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah as these great men of God, and they certainly were. But Peter says, you have a greater privilege than Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Isaiah is that when they prophesied God truly re- revealed to them what to write and yet they didn't fully comprehend God's eternal redemptive plan not even John the Baptist did now hindsight is 2020 when we look back from where we live to the cross we see now that it was God's eternal redemptive plan to send Christ into the world not to judge the world at his first coming but to save the world through the cross and through His glorious resurrection. And now we look prophetically to the future for His second coming where He comes to take the church out of the world and to judge the living and the dead. So, we have a clear picture now than they did in those days. And and let me just say to that, we have an incredibly greater privilege living where we do. Let me just list to you several of the reasons that we are privileged. Number one is we have a full closed canon of scripture. Now sometimes I say to my wife, because I'm so technologically challenged, that I was born 200 years too late. That I would have been more at home before electricity, before computers and all of that. But then she reminds me, boy you sure do love the air conditioner in the summer. (laughs) So I enjoy technology, I just don't understand it. But those of us living today have a lot of advantages other than air conditioning. We have God's full revelation. That is all God intends us to know about Himself is found within this book. Everything Now it's not to say everything that is of God or about God or we could know of God and will know of God one day is in this book. But everything we need to honor and glorify Him and live victorious Christian lives is right here. Would you agree? So what we say is the Bible is inerrant and true. It's trustworthy. But more than that it is sufficient. It is all we need to glorify Him. John the Baptist didn't have this New Testament. He only had a portion of the Old Testament. So true with Isaiah and and the other prophets. But living where we do geographically, we have even greater privileges. We have religious freedom. Raise your hand if you went through a checkpoint on your way to work this morning and filled out a questionnaire on where you were going. I didn't. But when I traveled to other nations, that's a common occurrence. In fact, in a lot of countries where Christians are gathered this morning, there are government spies outside the doors taking names of those going in and out. Because one day those people will be persecuted if they are not already. We enjoy that incredible freedom today. Thirdly, we have access to great books. We have 2,000 years of Christian literature at our disposal. We live 20 minutes from the largest theological library in the world. I'm not exaggerating. Southwestern Baptist Seminary has the largest theological library in the world. And you are welcome to go there and check out books. We have a great library here in our church. If you have access to the internet, you don't need a library. Almost every great book ever written is now free to you online. Just read it or print it out and read it. So what a wonderful time in which to live as believers. The technolo- Technology and travel. I can look out the window of our conference room on the third floor. On a clear day, I can see the flight tower at Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. And in half an hour or less, depending on traffic, you can be at the airport from which you can go to anywhere in the world. I encourage every one of you, if you don't have one, to get a passport and be ready if the Lord would call you to missions. What a great time to live. But here's... I think the greatest privilege we have, listen very closely, we are 2,000 years closer to the return of Jesus than the people John ministered to. Now I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I know this. Our generation is the closest it's ever been. And so what, what a great time in which to be a believer. So that's why Jesus says, even the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist. Now, as we often say here, all of life is a stewardship. And the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. We've been given the closed canon of Scripture. We've been given religious freedom. We've given access to great Christian literature. We have been given access to technology and travel. We are closer to Christ's return than we've ever been. One day we will be held accountable for that, how we use those resources. And so, may the Lord give us wisdom to do that. Well, as we've been studying through the seventh chapter, in each of these historical anecdotes... We've asked questions of the text. What does this tell us about God? What does this tell us about the gospel? What does he want us to do in response to what we've learned? And we did that, remember, with the the story of the Roman centurion's slave. We did that with the, the widow of Nain and her son that Jesus raised from the dead. And last week we looked at even how our doubts and disappointments God can use for his glory. So... Let's ask some of those questions of of this text about John the Baptist being called the greatest of all time. What can we learn? And by the way, please remember John the Baptist is not the hero of John chapter 7, (laughs) Jesus is. And as you read the Bible, Old or New Testament, always remember Noah is not the hero of Genesis. Jonah is not the hero of the book of Jonah. Job is not the hero of the book of Job. And Luke is not the hero of Luke. God is the hero of the Bible. And so what does this tell us about him? Well, first of all, it tells us that he is immutable, which is a $20 theological word that means he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, I mentioned that blank white page between the Old and New Testament in your Bible. Unfortunately, a lot of people believe that on that blank white page, the 400 years between the last Old Testament prophet Malachi and the Gospel of Matthew, that God somehow underwent a makeover. Because they think of the God of the Old Testament as sort of harsh and cruel, right? Someone who's calling down fire from heaven and and killing people. And then Jesus comes along and he's humble and gentle and kind and sort of gives God a, a makeover. Don't you believe it? Friends, that is heresy. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has always been and will always be merciful and kind, but He is also always just. And we see that here in John 7, that God does not change. Now, you and I change. I've got a significant high school graduation anniversary coming up in a couple of years. A significant one. I've changed a lot in all ways since then, and I suspect my high school classmates have too. God never changes in any way. Just just try to wrap your, your brain around that. Even though he did not speak from heaven for over 400 years, when he finally did, he was the same as he ever was. God is immutable. Secondly, he is sovereign, which means he's in charge and we're not which means he calls and uses whoever he chooses to advance his eternal redemptive plan, including John the Baptist. You remember that John the Baptist was full of the Holy Spirit, Luke 1 says, from his mother's womb. It was not by accident that God used John the Baptist. He chose him before the foundation of the world. In fact, he brought about miraculous circumstances to even bring John into the world. Remember Luke 1 tells us that his mother and father were past the time of bearing children, had been barren all their life. An angel of the Lord comes to his father Zacharias and tells him, your wife's going to get pregnant. She's going to have a son and you're to call him John. And even though this was a godly man, he doubted. And because of his doubt, the angel said, you're not going to be able to speak until the child is born. And that happened. And when he finally spoke, uh, he knew that all the Lord had predicted had come through and come true. God is sovereign. He uses whoever He wills, including John the Baptist. Now, thirdly, God is not a respecter of persons. Now, the Apostle Paul says that in the book of Romans at least two or three times, that God is not a respecter of persons, meaning that God does not take our resumes and choose from the resumes out of the world those that are most impressive. In fact, just the opposite. Look at Luke chapter 7. And he says, verse 26, but what did you come out to see a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and one who's more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written, behold, I send a messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way before you. I say to you, among those born of women, there's none greater than John, yet he is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And when all the people and the tax collectors heard this, they acknowledged God's justice having been baptized with the baptism of John. Now, he purposely uses that term, the people and the tax collectors. In our vernacular, we would say the hoi polloi, the the common people heard this message of repentance and justice, and they believed it, they were baptized, and he included among those the tax collectors, which were considered the worst sinners of that period because they had forsaken their birthright as Jewish people and had partnered with the Roman government. They were outcasts of society. And even the tax collectors repented. And then read on. It says, but, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers, that's the scribes, rejected God's purpose for themselves not having been baptized by John. The vast majority of those who were baptized with John's baptism were common people. Many of them uneducated in the law. But those who should have known the Bible the best, the Old Testament scholars, the Pharisees, the scribes, heard the same message of judgment and repentance, they wouldn't repent. They wouldn't be baptized. And that reminds us that God's not a respecter of persons, He's not reading resumes. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 to look around the church, not many of you are wise or noble or wealthy. And he says, God has chosen the common things of the world to confound the wise. Because here's what God knows. If the Pharisees and the scribes had been the ones to come to faith, they would have said they did it. They would have said we figured it out with our intellect. But he says God chose the foolish things of the world. Not that he didn't choose any, but he says not many of those people come to save me. And it's true today. But God's not a respecter person. He's not impressed with your resume. He's not impressed with your credentials. Not impressed with your bank account in the least. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And and that leads us to our, our fourth thing we want to learn from this text, which is God is just. Right? God is just, which means He always judges sin. And from time to time... I will hear people praying or talking to another Christian, and they seem to be demanding justice from God. I am praying to God that He gives me justice. And I always cringe when I hear someone praying to God for justice. Because justice means you get what you deserve. And David in the Old Testament, when he looked back on his life, wrote a prayer to God and he said this, I thank you that you have not treated me as my sins deserve. See, David knew if he got justice, he would be forever lost in hell. Instead, God gave him mercy and grace. So don't ask God for justice. Ask God for mercy and for grace. But God is just. One day he's going to judge all sin. And and these people, look, look what it says. When the people and the tax collectors came out into the wilderness, they acknowledged what? God's justice. And so, what they were doing and the reason they were being baptized is this, now don't forget there was no such thing as baptism for Jewish people up until this point. The only people who were baptized were Gentiles who wanted to go out of paganism into Judaism. They had to be baptized. But it was unheard of for a Jewish person to be baptized. And these were primarily Jewish people that were coming out to be baptized for John. What they were saying is, our Jewishness does not make us right with God. John was saying, remember what he said, don't say we are children of Abraham. Don't say we're Jewish because God is able to raise up children of Abraham from these rocks. They were acknowledging what John is preaching is right. We are sinners in need of salvation. We need to confess our sins and be made right with God and they acknowledge God is just. In other words, if God had cast all of them into hell without a second chance, he would have been right to do so. And friends, if you truly understand the gospel today, it's not a gospel that you're off a few degrees and God wants to straighten you out. It's not that you're a rough cut diamond and he wants to polish you up a little bit. The truth is this, that we're all sinners And fall short of the glory of God. And we are eternally separated from God if we come to Him on our own merits. And we are helpless and hopeless just like those tax collectors were. And the only hope we have is to cast ourselves at the feet of Jesus and beg not for justice but for mercy. That's what these people were doing. And Jesus says, you came out in the wilderness because you heard this this message And we have the privilege of speaking that same truth today. Look, we're like John the Baptist. We're not to be dressed in soft clothes and making friends with the politically elite and telling people they want to hear. Every true preacher of the gospel today has to preach the same message that John preached. Sin and righteousness and judgment. And if we fail to do that, you need to find a new church or some new pastors here. That's our job. And so John did his job very well, and Jesus praised him for that. Now, one day we'll stand before the Lord and we'll give an account for what we did with those privileges that we had. What about you, dear friend? Have you acknowledged, like the tax collector, that God is just? That one day he's going to judge your sin? First of all, you've got to admit you're a sinner standing under the judgment of God. The Bible says you are. And if you will acknowledge that and confess that, that's the first step of salvation. But you have to come to Him on His terms, which means you can't come to Him with resume in hand and say, Lord, put me on your team and you'll be in good shape. You have to come to Him as the tax collector with empty pockets, hands up turned, head down. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And I can tell you based on the authority of the Word of God, if you'll come to Him in that attitude, with that belief, He will hear your prayer. He will forgive your sins. You'll be born again. And it will be said of you, though you might think of yourself as the least in the kingdom of heaven, you are greater than John the Baptist. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank You for Your Word. So good to us. And these little... True stories from Luke seem on first reading not that important until we stop to ask some questions. What are you teaching us here? How do you want us to change? And Lord, uh, you're sovereign, we're not. You do what you please. And so Lord, we're your servants. Just lead us and we'll go where you have us to go. You haven't changed, you're immutable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. You're the same God in the Old Testament, on the blank page of the Bible, and in the New Testament, and today. and So, Father, you're as just today as you've ever been. On one hand, that's good news. On the other hand, it's bad because you punish sin. And all of us are guilty. We're so grateful that you sent Jesus into the world to die in our place so that all who put their faith and trust in Him do not have to fear judgment. As Paul says in Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And Lord, on behalf of all these believers here, I thank you for Jesus. And Lord, I would pray for any in this room who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. I pray your spirit would move mightily in this place. I pray you would draw the sinners to salvation. I pray you would give them the faith to believe and grant repentance. For your name's sake, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.